Right now, I would like to introduce Luke Hazemeyer. Hey, what's up, everybody? How's it going this morning? Good? Cool. So, this is the end of our Rise Above series. So we've been going, if you've been with us this summer, we've been going all summer through the book of 2 Timothy, and today we are going to be hitting on the last four verses of the book of 2 Timothy and wrapping up that series. So I hope you've enjoyed it. It's really cool to be focusing on these four verses because not only are these the last four verses of 2 Timothy, but these are the last four verses that the Apostle Paul ever wrote. So we are literally reading the last words of Paul, probably wrote these um, weeks before he would go and be um, executed. So let's just start by reading it. Again, we're in 2 Timothy 4, the very last four verses, which is verses 18 through 22. And this is what it says. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, but Trophimus I left sick at Miletus. Make every effort to come before winter. Eubulus greets you, also Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brethren. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. So funny story. Yesterday, as I was finishing up my prep for this, I had been, I've been studying this passage for two weeks, and I kept on procrastinating on looking up the pronunciation for all those names that we just read. <laughs> so yesterday, I text Van. Van's been on sabbatical for the month of July. He'll be back in August. But I text Van, our senior leader here. I'm like, hey, Van, like, I forgot to look up these pronunciations. Can you just send me a voice text reading through that passage? So then I had a recording of Van on my phone pronouncing all of those cities and all of those names. And I wish I saved it so I could show it to all of you, but I forgot. I didn't do it. I didn't think of it. So anyways, in case you think I'm super smart, I'm not that smart. But so uh, read that passage. The part that strikes me the most is the very first sentence. Can we put that passage back up real quick? The part that really strikes me is the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. Stop there. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. It really strikes me because it sounds like the character and nature of God to me, but what we know is that literally weeks later, Paul would be beheaded for his faith by Nero, the emperor of Rome at the time. And so I read that and I was thinking, okay, Paul is saying with such conviction and confidence, not the Lord will probably rescue me from every evil deed, but the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. And he's saying that with such confidence, yet it doesn't seem like he got rescued from the evil deed of his murder. So I decided to dive deeper into that, and that's going to be the place that we spend most of our time this morning, is what does the Lord's rescue actually look like? What should we expect the Lord's rescue to look like from the scriptures? So I'm going to pray, and then we're just going to dive into that. Father, we thank you for your presence here this morning. 
ask that you open up our minds and our hearts to really understand what you are saying to us. I ask, Father, that none of us leave this room without being changed by your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to spend most of the time talking about the Lord's rescue, but I do want to take a second and just focus on some of the less significant parts of the passage. Less, less significant is the wrong way to say it, but focus on some of the, the kind of random facts he throws in there at the end, some of the names that he names. So starting with Prisca and Aquila, or as she's otherwise known throughout the scriptures, Priscilla and Aquila, Paul tells Timothy to greet them and... Here's the interesting thing about Priscilla and Aquila. They were a married couple. Aquila was the man. Priscilla was his wife. And throughout the scriptures, of the six times that they are mentioned, four of them, Priscilla's name is mentioned before Aquila's name. So instead of saying Aquila and Priscilla, the author says Priscilla and Aquila. And that doesn't seem like anything out of the ordinary for us, but in the ancient world, a wife's name would never be listed before her husband's name. That was like taboo. You would not do that. And so it's really fascinating to see here um, and really unusual that Priscilla's name would be mentioned first four times, the majority of the times. There's a number of explanations for why people think um, this happened. One is that some think that Priscilla converted first, and that's why her name is listed first. Others think she was from a Roman family that had prominence. And so because her family had more prominence than Aquila as her name was listed first, some would say that her contribution to the church was greater than Aquila's, and that's why her name was listed first. So we know they both were teachers. In Acts 18, there's this dude named Apollos who is just accepted Jesus and is super passionate and is going around in zeal preaching the gospel places, but he doesn't have his theology quite right. So they actually take him aside and teach him and help his message become all the more powerful. So they're both teachers. They're both leaders in the church. And some think her name was first because her contribution actually was greater than Aquila's. Some would say it was just her personality. She was more outgoing. So they always said her name first. <clears throat> and then lastly, some believe that the only explanation for why her name would be first and Aquila's would be second is that she was the spiritual leader of the household, which is, um, again, incredibly interesting for the time that we're talking about. So my, like, the extent of my knowledge ends here. I can't speak with certainty about why her name was first. Maybe nobody can. But what it got me thinking about was this. A lot of times Christianity gets a bad rap in the world saying that we don't empower women well. And there are a couple of verses in the New Testament that are hard for people to understand. But um, as you actually look at how Jesus interacted with women and you look at how the church, how women were involved in the early church in Acts, you see like an unprecedented amount of women being mentioned, being empowered, having notable positions, doing ministry. And I just think that's awesome because for centuries, women have been disempowered and not able to really use their God-given gifts in the way that God created them to. And I think that we're seeing a time, and we're continuing to see a time, especially here, where um, we're not looking, we're not showing partiality. God, God says, it says in the scriptures, God shows no partiality, that God is not looking at genders to see who he can, how he can advance his will, but he's looking at giftedness, whatever the gender might be. So I just think that's cool. <clears throat> Wanted to mention that. All the other names in there, 
Most of the other ones, so we had Onesiphorus, Eubulus, Pudens, Linus, Claudia. I really wish you could have heard Van saying all those names. It was great. But all those other names, most of them find their only mention in the Bible in 2 Timothy. Two of them we find in other places. So we've got Trophimus. And Trophimus is, here's a really interesting thing about this passage. Paul says that he left Trophimus sick in Miletus. Miletus was a city. He left him sick there, meaning that he was with Trophimus and Trophimus was sick and Paul left and Trophimus was still sick. Here's why that is kind of an interesting thing. A lot of people believe that the way that the apostles in the New Testament did miracles was that they could heal whoever they wanted, whenever they wanted, or they could hear from God clearly whenever they wanted. And, and all these gifts, they could do them um, whenever they wanted and have a hundred percent success rate with them, hundred percent success rate with healing. And so I actually have some friends who are not so sure about the gifts of the spirit, about God moving in miraculous power, about God doing supernatural things still today. I have some friends who aren't sure about that. And part of it is that they think that the early apostles had that like 100% success rate. And so then when people today talk about having those gifts, like, no, you don't, there's no way that you can just heal whoever you want, whenever you want. But I think if we look into the scriptures, especially in this example, it looks like the apostles sometimes pray for people to be healed and they didn't get healed. I'm sure Paul prayed for Trophimus and prayed that God would heal him and, pray, and you know, commanded health to his body. And it seems like it didn't happen. And so to me, that says that although the early apostles probably had extra favor on them because they were launching a new movement, that they probably functioned in the gifts of the spirit and in the power of the Holy Spirit, just like we do today. And so that was an interesting thing from that. Last thing, Erastus, he was a city treasurer. So he's mentioned three other times in the New Testament. Um, friends with Paul and Timothy, wealthy guy, influential guy, having a political office. So interesting um, person to be in the early church. And then Paul's very last words, the last words he penned, the last thing that he ever wrote, the last sentence was, the Lord be with your spirit, grace be with you. And I think it's cool just to show that the very last thing he's saying is, I just want to be with Jesus and live in his grace. Those are the two things that Paul valued more than any others. So that's hopefully covering most of the of verse 19 through 22. But now I want to really zero in on verse 18 and talk about what is the Lord's rescue. And so I mentioned that he says the Lord's going to rescue me from every evil deed and he's about to get beheaded. More than that, Earlier in his life, there had definitely been times where it seems like the Lord did not rescue him the way we think about rescue. Let's read 2 Corinthians 11 verses 24 through 27. And I would love to hear if any of you think that this sounds like rescue to you. Five times I've received 39 lashes from the Jewish leaders. Three times I experienced being beaten with rods. Once they stoned me. Three times I've been shipwrecked for an entire night and day. <clears throat> I was adrift in the open sea. In my difficult travels, I've faced many dangerous situations, perilous rivers, robbers, foreigners, and even my own people. 
I've survived deadly peril in the city, in the wilderness, with storms at sea, and with spies posing as believers. I've toiled to the point of exhaustion and gone through many sleepless nights. I've frequently been deprived of food and water, left hungry and shivering out in the cold, lacking proper clothing. Does not sound a whole lot like rescue. And so I really spent the last two weeks asking God, studying other parts of scripture and really wrestling with the idea of what is the Lord's rescue? Like, um, what does it mean? What does Paul mean when he says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed? And what I got out of that were three primary ways that we see the manifestation of the Lord's rescue. It's three ways we see the Lord's rescue. And so I just wanna go through each of those three. And starting with the first one, I think this is the one that most of us think of. The Lord rescues us from bad things that are about to happen to us. Okay. The first way that we see the Lord's rescue is the Lord rescuing us from bad things that are about to happen to us. And so Lazarus would be a good example of this. If you don't know who that is, Lazarus was a guy that Jesus raised from the dead in John 9. And so he obviously was facing a pretty tough situation, death. And the Lord came in and rescued him and brought him back to life. For me personally, I've actually seen this in my life. There was a time about six years ago when I was driving from a friend's house in Colerain to Clifton, where I lived. I had an apartment down there. And this was a time of life where I was really struggling with intellectual doubt of God's existence. So I, it sounds like I was, makes it sound different than it actually was. I was reading my Bible every day. I was memorizing scripture. I was experiencing God's presence. I was seeing miracles happen. I was hearing God speak to me. I was leading a small group. I was like doing everything that a good 22 year old Christian guy should be doing, but still kind of in the back of my mind, there was like this nagging attack that was like, God's not real. He's not good. Like, how could God exist with this and this and this? And I would pray it away. I would, say, I would willpower through it. But I had this constant nagging of God's not real. And so one, during that um, drive home, I was especially kind of emotionally troubled because this was really wearing on me. And not to mention me, my friend had been watching Law and Order Special Victims Unit. And if you know anything about that story, if you know anything about that show, it's like dealing with horrible crimes and, and solving the crimes. And you just, you know, it's, it's evil. And, and I just was watching this and like, oh my gosh, I can't believe like this actually happens and feeling troubled. And then as I'm driving home, like probably one in the morning, they, uh, doubts start to rise up. And usually, like I said, when the doubts would rise up, I would just pray or I would not think about it or will through it and push it down. But this time, like nothing I was doing was working and they were rising and rising and rising. And eventually I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to lose my faith right now. And so I turn on the Christian radio to, you know, hopefully find something that helps me in the moment. And I, I am like, I support Christian radio. I like what they do, but the worst possible song came on ever. <laughs> like it was cheesy and felt just inauthentic. And I was just like, oh, great. 
And so did nothing, doubts are rising, 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 rising. Finally, in a moment of like expression and emotion, I just cried out to God. I didn't think before I said this, I just said that. I said, God, I don't care if I doubt your existence for the rest of my life, I'm sticking with you. I'm gonna trust you and I'm gonna live for you. And it was a really powerful moment. I felt like I got major breakthrough at that point in time. And so I finished my drive. Well, I almost finished it. I get about three minutes away from my apartment in Clifton. If any of you are familiar with the area, I was going south on Central Parkway, about to turn left on Ravine. And so as I'm going down Central Parkway, I'm coming up to the intersection of Central Parkway and McMillan. If you know the intersection, there's a big hill on the left side if you're going south. And so I'm approaching the intersection and I get pretty close to the light and the light turns yellow. And I could have easily gone through the light and made it on the other side before it turned red and I would have been fine. But something in me was like, and I didn't even think about it. I just, something in me just slammed my brakes on. And I literally had to slam on my brakes so that I would stop before the light. And it wasn't because I saw anything coming. There was no reason why I did it. I just did it. And right as I'm skidding to, literally skidding to a stop in front of the red light, this huge semi comes barreling down the hill and goes right through its red light. And I realized that if I had tried to go go through that intersection, that semi would have drilled me on my driver's side door. And I don't think I'd be here right now if that would have happened. I remember just sitting there like, wow, God, you literally just saved my life. You are real. <laughs> and um, that was, so that was a powerful moment in that particular struggle of mine. That's a different, that's a, it was a year later that I got full freedom. That's a different message. But sometimes God will rescue us in that dramatic, miraculous fashion where he shows up and prevents something bad from happening. He prevents a semi from hitting us. And again, this is usually the kind of rescue that we think about. And so the practical takeaway from this is I want to encourage all of us to not fizzle out on praying for miracles. Let me say that again. Don't fizzle out on praying for miracles. I know I do. There are times where I, for one reason or another, am less inclined to go to God and ask him to move supernaturally or miraculously on my behalf. And usually what snaps me out of it is I'm talking to a friend who tells me about a supernatural experience they had. Like recently, a couple months ago, I think, had a friend who lost his keys and he spent like a minute looking for them. But then he's like, you know what? I'm just going to pray and see if the Holy Spirit tells me where my keys are. So he prays and he feels like God says they are in the certain pants in the pants pocket and those pants you put in the laundry. So you need to go to the laundry room to find them. Goes, it's exactly where they were. I remember hearing that story like, man, I don't have any faith. Like, I, I don't ever, if I lose something, my first thought isn't to pray and ask God where it is. I just go look for it. And if I can't find it, go buy a new one. But, <laughs> but man, like, why don't I pray and ask God to move in miraculous, supernatural ways like that more often? And so I usually hear a story like that and it helps me get back into it. But um, we can't fizzle out on praying for God to come and move in our lives in supernatural ways. We have a relationship with a supernatural God. What that means is we should expect a supernatural life. We're not in a relationship with a natural God. We're in a relationship with a supernatural God. <clears throat> so 
when I give up on miracles or when I kind of get fizzle out on praying for miracles, usually it's one of three things. One, I get too busy to set aside time, um, to set aside time to spend time with the Lord, either alone or with community. I've heard someone say before that when the enemy wants to attack your future, he uses fear. When the enemy wants to attack your past, he uses shame. But when he wants to attack your present, he uses distraction. And that's just so true from my experience that the thing that takes me out of that supernatural mindset, that mindset of expecting God to show up in powerful, miraculous ways. It's usually not fear or shame or anxiety or stress. It's usually just distraction. I just get too busy. I stop going to house group. I stop spending time with Lord, with God in the morning. And I just slowly go kind of drift back to a natural way of thinking. And so um, if we want to stay pressing into miracles and seeing God move in a supernatural way. We can't get so busy that we don't have enough time for spending time with God ourselves and spending time with God along with other believers. Second thing for me when I kind of fizzle out is it's because I have settled for the amount of supernatural I've seen in my life. It's because I'm like, well, I've seen someone's headache get healed. That's enough healing for me. And I don't actually say it like that, but that's kind of what my mindset is when I really look at it closely. And I want to tell you guys, like, we can't settle for the amount of supernatural we've seen now because there is no arriving when it comes to experiencing God's power in our lives. God wants to continually see us experience more and more of his power and his presence and his goodness continuously. And so settling is basically saying, well, God's given me all that he wants to give me. And you can know for sure that that is not the heart of God. So don't settle. Keep pressing in for more. And then for me, the third thing that discourages me from praying for miracles is disappointment is praying and then not seeing what I want to see happen. And um, as I was kind of reflecting on this, I was remembering a conversation I was having with someone. I kind of mentioned this kind of person earlier who's not so into the supernatural, but they're a Christian. And I was talking to this person and he was saying, you know what? I don't like the mentality of praying for God to heal right now or praying for God to speak to us right now or praying for God to show us something right now because it sounds a whole lot like instant gratification. And I just thought about that, like, huh? And I can think of some Christian leaders maybe that might fall into that. Maybe I've fallen into that before myself. But when I really think about it, some of the most enduring persevering people I know are people that continually go after seeing people healed. And here's why. If you really want to step out and press into praying for sick people to be healed, praying for broken people to be healed, then there are going to be a lot of times where you have to experience disappointment because there are times, and we don't know why, there are times when healing doesn't happen. And I think about there's a Christian leader, maybe some of you have heard of him, named Todd White. He tells his story that he literally prayed for a thousand people to be healed before he saw one person healed. And so, actually, contrary to the idea that praying for healing 
exposes an instant gratification mindset, the people that pray for healing are the people that have to wrestle with disappointment. Like if you want to press into healing, you're going to have to go through disappointment. And so, um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, there's no easy answer when you really are praying hard and especially if it's someone you love and you don't see the miracle you want. It's there's no easy answer for how to keep going. Um, but we have to keep pushing through disappointment because on the other side of disappointment is breakthrough. So again, the very first way that we can experience the Lord's rescue is through that supernatural breakthrough. And I want to encourage all of us, let's not fizzle out on praying for miracles. But here's the second way that we might see the Lord's rescue in our life. The Lord rescues us from bad things that look good and good things that could be better. The Lord rescues us from bad things that we think are good and from good things that actually could be better. So Romans 8.26 touches on this, and I want to read that. Paul says in Romans 8.26, In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So that phrase, we do not know how to pray, what that means is that sometimes we pray for things that God's like, no, you do not want that. <laughs> no. Um, other times, there's stuff that we're not praying for that we, oh, I don't need to pray for that. And God's like, no, pray for that, pray for that. So like the Spirit actually, the Holy Spirit actually comes in our weakness and prays the things that we should be praying and we're not praying and for on our behalf. And then also, try, I guess, like, I don't know how this works, but the stuff we're praying for that we shouldn't be praying for, he like somehow cancels that or prays against that or something. I don't know how it works. But uh, point is that I'm really trying to make is that sometimes we think things are good and they're not. And sometimes we think things are um, bad or not worth, not worth it. And they actually are. And so to kind of illustrate this further, I want to draw a diagram I hope that everybody can see it, but if you can't, I'm sorry. I'm going to try to draw it really big. This marker is also not the best, but. So I want to talk about our perception of a, th of a matter versus reality on this side, okay? And so... In this quadrant, this would be something we perceive as good. Over here would be something we perceive as bad. And then over here in these two, this quadrant would be something that actually is good. And this would be something that actually is bad. Okay. So just take a look at that real quick. If you can't read it, this says perception, good, bad. Reality, good, bad. So in this quadrant right here, these would be matters that we think are good, we perceive them as good, and in reality, they actually are good. So to simplify this, I'm going to put a big P and a big R, and a smiley face means good, okay? Okay? We perceive it as good, in reality, it actually is good. So let's talk about our health. This would be something like exercise, like getting into a healthy rhythm of exercise. 
That's something that all of us would say, yes, that is a good thing. And in reality, that actually is a good thing. None of us would be like, no, you know what? I just don't think it's good for your health to exercise regularly, okay? So that's pretty easy. Now let's go to this quadrant. These, this place, this would be things that we perceive as not being good. We perceive as being bad or we perceive as being unimportant, but in reality, they actually are good. So we perceive them as not good. In reality, they actually are good. Okay. So this would be like, I remember when I, I was a wrestler in high school and I remember first starting to lift in my freshman year, all throughout elementary and middle school, I was really skinny. And so I was pumped to get buff. And so I start lifting and I'm like lifting every day. Okay, no break, like every single day. And someone comes and tells me, hey, Luke, like it's not actually good to lift every day. You need to take breaks. I'm like, no, breaks are for the week. Yeah. And, and so I like, was like, if you want your teeth to be clean, you brush them every day, right? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, well, there you go. So <laughs> totally mistaken. So I thought that taking breaks would actually negatively affect me. But in reality, I've eventually learned that no, unless you give your muscles time to um, rest and to heal, you won't actually put on muscle mass. And so I started taking breaks and seeing like, oh, wow, yeah, this actually is good. I thought this was bad, but it actually is good. That would be an example of this. I perceived it as not being important, taking breaks. In reality, taking breaks when you're lifting is critical. Let's go down to this quadrant now over here. This place would be, in reality, it's actually bad for us, but we perceive it as good. Okay. So we perceive it as good. In reality, it's actually bad. The same example applies. So I thought it was good to lift every day. In reality, it was actually harmful for me to do that. We could think of other examples. And then this last one, this would be things that we perceive as bad, and in reality, they actually are bad. So like, I don't know, eating 10,000 calories of cake every day, okay? We all know that's not good for our health, and <laughs> yeah, whoever said that, I'll talk to you later and pray for you. But... We all know that that is, we all perceive in our perception, we know it's, wrong, it's not good for our health. And then in reality, yes, that actually is not good for your health. So here's why I took the time to show you this diagram. There are things that we think are good for us that actually are not good. And there are things that we don't think are important or we think are bad even that actually are good for us. And so, because we have these blind spots, I mean, I don't think there's anybody in here whose perception perfectly aligns with reality. Is there anybody? Raise your hand real quick. Because you can come up and give the sermon if you want. I'll just step off the stage. But, but since we, none of our perceptions are perfectly aligned with reality, what that means is that all of us have blind spots. And it's, a, it's you know, it's kind of a scary thing to think about, but right now there are things for all of us where we think they're good right now, but we're going to realize at some point, wow, this actually isn't good. Like how many of you have ever been in a relationship before where 
you were like, man, this is the best thing ever in the moment. And then later on, after it was done, you're like, wow, that was the biggest mistake of my life. That's the kind of thing we're talking about here. Um, And then there's also stuff that we either think is bad or we don't think is important. And it really is. And God's like screaming from heaven, do this. Yes, yes, yes. And we're like, oh, it's not that important. And so we have these blind spots. And um, it's so important that we are intentional about putting ourselves in situations where these blind spots can be revealed. Here's what I mean. About a month ago, Wilson and I got a chance to have breakfast with, um, maybe some of you heard of Putty Putman, teacher, Christian leader, become a, becoming a friend of Wilson and I's. And we got to sit down with him at first watch after he had come here to speak at a church in Loveland the next morning and just talk to him. And so he's asking us about ministry and he's asking us about marriage. And um, I tell him about something that would fall in this quadrant. It was something that I didn't think was important, but my wife, Jamie, helped me understand, no, actually really is important. And the funny thing is, I forget what it was, so I'm probably going to have to learn it again. Like I, literally, like, I was literally, like, trying to remember, what was it that I was telling Putty about? And I couldn't remember it. So... Um, hopefully I have the same level of humility and, and relearn whatever it was. But I, uh, but yeah, so I was telling him about that and he looked at Wilson and I, he's like, oh yes, you guys are really learning an important lesson right here. He's like, God will often hide the answer in your wife. Does that sound like good advice to you guys? <laughs> God will often hide the answer in your wife. And that just blew my mind. Like the profoundness of that um, statement was this, that God will oftentimes, rather than just telling us, he will tell our wife, our husband, or a friend, a father, child, whoever, he'll tell another human being, he'll put the answer in them so that we actually have to interact with them in order to get the answer. And this is because it is so easy to idolize independence. Especially in our country, it is so easy to idolize independence. And we think, and we can spiritualize, I don't need anybody else but the Lord. I'm gonna spend three hours a day in his presence, worshiping and praying and read my Bible. I don't need to go to church. I don't need to go to house group. I don't need community. I just need him. And God's like, nope, I'm actually gonna hide the answer in other people. So you actually have to go to other people. And so this is why uh, the author of Hebrews' words, do not give up meeting together, are so important. I want to encourage all of you, uh, refuse to sacrifice community. Refuse, like make it not an option to sacrifice community. Because it is in interaction with other believers that we see these blind spots. And it's important that it's not just your closest of the close friends, because oftentimes a group of three people can all be in the same error. Seriously, a group of five people can all have the same thing that they need to be exposed. But when you're putting yourself in groups of 20, 25, 30, when you're putting yourself in a group of a larger amount of people, then God will use, he will hide the answer in those people so that you can actually grow. And so refuse to sacrifice community in your lives. Like God is not up there telling anybody, hey, you know what? 
I think you need less community. Okay? Now, there are times when community changes. There are times when you there's times when you go from one season to another, your focus has changed, but it's never less community. God does not, it's not, it's not going to help anybody to have less time or less interaction, less meaningful interaction with other believers. And we absolutely need it if we're going to see these blind spots. And so part of the Lord's rescue is helping us realize you think this is, you think this is bad, it's actually good, or you think this is good, but it's actually bad. Or it could be, you think this is good, but I've got something better. And he'll hide the answer in other people. So I just urge all of you, I'm passionate about this. If you can't tell, do not sacrifice community. So that's the second form of rescue. Third form of rescue is this. The Lord rescues us from despair and hopelessness when bad things do happen to us. This is the third form of rescue, and, um, and it can be a painful place. You usually don't experience this form of rescue and feel amazing because um, something hard's happening. But this is a way the Lord rescues us. And there's a story in Acts 16 of Paul, but like 15 years earlier, and his friend Silas that I want to read where we see this happen. So Acts 16, 22 through 25 says this. A great crowd gathered... And all the people joined in to come against them. The Roman officials ordered that Paul and Silas be stripped of their garments and beaten with rods on their bare backs. After they were severely beaten, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them securely. So the jailer placed them in the innermost cell of the prison and had their feet bound and chained. Paul and Silas, undaunted, prayed in the middle of the night and sang songs of praise to God while all the other prisoners listened to their worship. So in this story, Silas and Paul's beating was not prevented. They didn't experience the kind of rescue where God stops a bad thing from happening to you, which, is, um, which was the beating. Nobody wants to get beaten with rods naked, that would suck. So they did, they did not experience the Lord's rescue there. And some of you know the end of this story, which is that literally the next verse, an earthquake happens and all the prison doors open up. And in that moment, they are rescued. But here's what I want to suggest to all of you, that Paul and Silas's joyous praise of God while in prison showed that they were already experiencing the Lord's rescue before the prison doors were opened. And in the same way, when we're in the thick of it, we can already experience the Lord's rescue before we see the supernatural breakthrough. Because um, what this all comes down to is understanding what Jesus means to us in our lives. And we're going to get into that in a little bit more, but I wanted to also share this takeaway from it. Um, with that in mind, with the with um, in mind, Paul and Silas being beaten and they were locked up in a really, like they were, the way their um, legs were chained would actually have been pretty painful. So they're in pain, they got beaten, they're in jail and they are singing out joyful praises to God. Um, as I was reflecting on that, this is a takeaway that I um, felt like God shared with me. The most dangerous Christians to the enemy's cause aren't the ones who have been rescued from every bad thing. 
They're the ones who've gone through loss, trauma, disappointment, and pain, and still love, obey, and find their joy in God. Those are the most dangerous Christians, the most dangerous followers of Jesus to the enemy. And I know there are some people in this room right now that have gone through some hard stuff, that have gone through some pain and some loss and some trauma. And the fact that all of you are still here, still trusting the Lord, still finding your joy in him, still seeking after him, man, you all are dangerous to Satan. You all are dangerous to the kingdom of darkness. And so um, when we're rescued from despair in this way, what's happening is we are realizing our contentment in Christ. Okay? When we realize our contentment in Christ, we are rescued from despair. This is what Paul is talking about in Philippians 3. He says, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ— More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul says that everything else is lost compared with knowing Jesus. That's what contentment in Christ looks like. C.S. Lewis said this, the man who has God and everything else has no more than the man who has God alone. That's contentment in Christ. Jesus said that what, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what he's saying there is that whatever it is that you treasure more than anything else, that is going to be the place of, that's going to be where your heart is. That's going to be the thing that you live for. And so life, Christian life, is learning to value Jesus more than anything else in our life. And it's a journey. It's not something you do once. Like, well, I value him more than anything else now. Um, It's a journey, but as you continue to take steps towards living in such a way where Jesus really is the most important thing in your life, as you pursue contentment in Christ, there's literally nothing the enemy can do to you because the best thing about your life, he cannot touch. He might attack your health. He might attack your finances. He might attack all sorts of things, but when Jesus really is the most important thing to you, when he really is the treasure of your heart, the enemy can't touch you. And so contentment in Christ is what allows us to experience rescue from despair and hopelessness. Last thing I want to say, I'm not saying if you feel overwhelmed by grief, you don't love God enough. I want to say that again. It's important that we understand this. I'm not saying if you feel overwhelmed by grief, then you don't love God enough. Okay? And here's why. I really believe that God isn't asking for our emotional stability in times of trial. He's asking for our trust. Okay? He's not asking for emotional stability. He's asking for our trust. And so in those times of pain or loss or whatever, you... Don't feel shame for feeling sad, okay? Don't feel shame if you feel so sad that you can't even think. But know um, that just continuing to pursue Jesus and to demonstrate your trust in him is all that he's asking of you in those moments. Just continue to put your trust in him. So, like I said, earthquake happens. Um, Getting back to the 
Paul and Silas' story in jail. Earthquake happens, all of the prison doors fly open, and the jailer is about to kill himself because he knows what happens to jailers who let their prisoners go. Um, they would get executed, and they would get executed painfully. And so he's like, I'm, I'm just going to take my own life. And so right as the jailer is about to stab him, fall on his own sword, Paul yells out, stop, we're all here. And they turn the lights on, and all of the prisoners are still in their cells. No one had moved, even though all the doors were open. And I was like, man, like, I understand why Paul and Silas didn't do that, but what the heck? Why didn't all these other prisoners, like, bolt when the earthquake happened? And what I came to and what I think has to be what happened is that they were so impacted by Paul and Silas's worship of God, even in their bleak situation, that they actually wanted to stay and they didn't know it, but they were about to receive Jesus. And so then we, so I don't know if that happened or not, but we do know that the jailer actually takes Paul and Silas to his house, cleans their wounds, and Paul and Silas get the chance to preach the gospel to the jailer and his entire family, and all of them get saved. And what this shows is that even in those horrible, even in those hard, painful situations, God will redeem it and bring something beautiful out of it. Even though Paul and Silas had been beaten naked and thrown in jail, what God, and that, that wasn't, God did not want them to get thrown in jail. God did not want them to get beaten. But because it happened, God used it to bring dozens of people to Christ, to save dozens of people. And so that is another way that we can find comfort in trials, is knowing that God's already got a plan to make this be something that either benefits me or benefits the people around me. That uh, verse in Romans 8 where we see most clearly God's redemption, we're not going to read it, but he says that we know that all things work together for good for those who love God. And so what that means to us is that whatever situations we're in, um, we know that in the end it's going to be good. In the end, God's going to bring some good out of it. Now, it doesn't mean the situation is going to be something we look back on and be like, man, I'm glad that happened. No. But it does mean that we'll be able to look back on it and be like, wow, look what God did from that horrible thing. He is amazing. And so whatever situation you're in, if it doesn't feel good right now, you know, just know it's not the end. Because in the end, all things are going to be um, worked together for good. So... Um, as Paul was writing this in 2 Timothy, he had seen God's redemption time and time again, like I said. He had seen God take horrible situations and make them and bring something beautiful out of them. But at this point in his letter, we can kind of tell as we're reading it that his hope has shifted, okay? That Paul wasn't excited anymore about how he was going to see God come through in this life. But Paul was excited seeing how he was going to be with Jesus in the next life. And that is a final way that we can be rescued from despair, is through the promise of eternal life. 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8 says this, That's why we're always full of courage. Even while we're at home in the body, we're homesick to be with the master. For we live by faith, not by what we see with our eyes. We live with a joyful confidence, yet at the same time, we take delight in the thought of leaving our bodies behind to be at home with the Lord. 2016, my grandfather died. And if you really knew my grandfather, you'd know that he loved 
um, old westerns. And at first, I hated them because they were in black and white. I'm just like, gosh, Grandpa, can't we watch something in color? But he would explain to me the characters and the actors and the actresses and the other movies they've been in. And pretty soon, like, I loved getting to uh, watch westerns with him. Didn't matter if they were black and white, technicolor, color, whatever. Um, he also, he was hilarious. He was the kind of guy in your family that could get the whole room laughing in 30 seconds. You could go from like a serious moment to everyone belly laughing. Is there someone in your family that you can think of who's like that? Um, that's how he was. And he was the one, if you know my dad, my dad's a little bit of an intense guy. And he was the one person that could put the fear of God in my dad. Like no one else but my grandpa could do that. Um, and another thing I, that you probably don't know about my grandpa, unless you know me, is that since 19, from 1968 until 2016, when he died, he was a quadriplegic. He had got in a swimming pool accident, broken his neck, lost feeling from his shoulders down, and lived in a wheelchair for 46 years, uh, 48 years. So he actually was one of the um, oldest surviving quadriplegics in the world. And I literally got to know, I got to have a, like, I knew him for 26 years of my life. And um, I should have only known, I shouldn't have known him ever, according to the statistics. And I remember when he passed away, it was just hard. It was sad. We all loved grandpa. But what we all were thinking about was, can you imagine 48 years of not being able to walk and then in the blink of an eye, you've got a new body and you're walking around with Jesus. And man, his hope was uh, just so real and so amazing. His hope in this life, yes, God came through in miraculous ways. He never should have lived 48 years after his accident. So God came through in supernatural miraculous ways, but we can't get distracted from the ultimate hope, which is that we're not meant to live a life where there's all these obstacles and distractions and difficulties. We're meant to be in the very presence of God with no restrictions, no barriers. And we all have that hope. And now it's easy to be like, to forget about that and be like, like I, I can fall into thinking of heaven as a consolation prize. Like I really know what I want to do on the earth, but if I die, then at least I have heaven. But no, heaven is the prize. Being with Jesus in his um, direct presence is the prize. And when we really know that, we can find rescue from despair and from hopelessness. And we can experience the Lord's rescue in any situation. So that's our series for 2 Timothy. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Rising above. I loved it. It was so 